0: We're going to look this morning at the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. In October of 1974, George Foreman and Muhammad Ali fought an epic boxing match in Kinshasa Zaire, and it became known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world. He was seven years younger than Ali, and he had an incredible right hand. He had one of the strongest punches that boxing has ever seen, and he was such an overwhelming favorite in this fight with Ali that in the dressing room before the fight, he and his handlers actually prayed that he wouldn't kill Ali because he was so powerful and so strong, and Ali had gotten kind of slow. He was a former champion in the second half of his career. He had not been champion for seven years, and his reflexes were not what they had been before. But Ali was known as a very smart and tactical fighter. And he had trained uh, that way for the fight. In his preparation for the Rumble in the Jungle, he had intentionally allowed his sparring partners to hit him over and over again. And he didn't defend himself. He just let them hit him to toughen himself up. And on the night of the fight, he purposely mocked Foreman, even though he was such an underdog. And Foreman responded by, unleashing and attacking Ali mercilessly, and he forced him back against the ropes where he hit him so many times that some of the sports writers that were a ringside actually thought Ali might die. Now, Ali adopted a tactic in the second round that someone later called rope where he purposely assumed a stance where he put his arms up and covered his torso and his chest and his face. And then he leaned back against the ropes. And because of the elasticity of the ropes, it caused the punches that Foreman was hitting him with to mostly hit his arms and his gloves. And that posture against the ropes allowed him to absorb most of the energy from the punches that Foreman threw. And it caused Foreman to get tired from overpunching. And it made him vulnerable to Ali's jabs. So every time he'd hit Ali, again and again, Ali would respond when there was an opening by jabbing him very hard right in the face, and pretty soon Foreman's face kind of puffed up, and, and he started to really uh, not be able to see. Now, that, that attack kept going on, but by the seventh round, Foreman got very exhausted and frustrated, and when he hit Ali with his final strong, really powerful punch to the body in the seventh round. Ali whispered to him, is that all you got, George? And Foreman said later that he thought at the time, yep, that's about it. And after that, from that moment on, after Ali was hit by the huge punch and absorbed it, Foreman said that he kind of lost his energy and Ali began to dominate the fight. And the end result was that in the eighth round, one round later, Ali knocked him out and reclaimed the title. Now, I remember watching that fight on Wide World of Sports. You remember Wide World of Sports on Saturday when they actually show boxing for free? <laughs> Howard Cosell, I think, was calling the fight from Zaire, and, and it came to my mind this week as I watched my youngest child, my youngest son, Matthew, go to his first football practice. Matthew's six, and when he showed up on Wednesday, Coach Garo handed him his helmet and his shoulder pads and his pants with the pads and the legs, and Garo talked about how the team would be taught the correct methods of tackling to minimize injury and how the the, the kids really needed to listen because they were going to take precautions to make sure that the kids were prepared to play. And I watched my little boy with the blonde hair, and, and you know, he's, what, three feet tall, four feet tall, I don't know how tall he is, but... He's out there with his helmet, which says Packers on the side. God bless Garo. Forget him, that, that helmet. And, and um, you know, he's got his pads, and he just, you know, he's in his shorts. He just looks like a little kid. And, and I, I watched the tackling practice, and, you know, it looks like the kids are trying to hug each other as they're trying to tackle. But I know the hard hits are coming. And I know there will be times where there will be little minor injuries, and Matthew's going to need to learn how to play in such a way that he's protected but also excels at the same time, kind of like a football rope Now, both those incidences, both those sporting events were in my mind this week. And as I thought about them, it struck me that there's a very significant spiritual principle that we can learn out of them, and it has tremendous correlation and application to our lives and to our church, especially in light of the last two months. So that leads us to the book of Ephesians. And it leads us to chapter 4 of Ephesians. And I want to talk very practically this morning about an issue that is so crucial for us as Christians and as a church. It involves an area of our walk, and involves the body of believers in areas that are so easy for the enemy to attack, and one that every single church is vulnerable uh, in in, uh, its daily practice. The area that we are all vulnerable in, the area that we need to be conscious of is the need to protect the body at all times, but especially in times of attack, especially in times of strong, obvious spiritual opposition. And it's very important that we understand this morning that the more aware we are and the more determined that we are not to let this happen, the stronger our defense will be. If we are aware of the need to protect the body in attack, if we are aware of the need to protect our lives in times of attack, and we're determined to counteract it and fight the right way, our defense will be strong. Now, as the Holy Spirit teaches teaches this to us, it's very important to understand that he is not harsh or critical in his instruction. In fact, 2 Timothy tells us that he uses the word, Uh, to teach us, to test our convictions, to restore to us the right way of thinking, and to train us how to be holy in the way that we live. Now, the Word establishes unbelievably and undeniably high standards for us, but it does so in a way that challenges us and encourages us. So while some of these things are are confrontational and and hard to hear maybe sometimes because they kind of hit where we are, at the same time, the Spirit of God doesn't just press us down, He encourages us and He stirs our heart and our mind and He says, this is how I want you to live because when you live this way, it's a way that is worthy of the salvation that you've been given and the calling that you have been given. So I pray that's how we approach this study this morning, that, that we have this mindset and that we understand that it's better to be proactive when it comes to spiritual opposition and divisive issues than it is to be reactive. It's far better to plan ahead, to be aware, to know how you're going to be in the battle, than to react when it comes and say, well, I don't know what to do. Part of the secret of Ali's training was that he knew what he was going to do. He only told a couple people. He told his trainer, Angelo Dundee, and he told a couple friends. But nobody else knew. And he realized after the first round, because in the first round he spent kind of dancing around and jabbing like he was known to do. That was Ali's way of fighting. But as he uh, did this in the very humid Zaire air and a very heavy, hot night, he realized after the first round, I'm not going to be able to keep this up. This is going to wear me out. Foreman was cutting off the ring, and he said, I'm going to get beaten. So as he came out for the second round, I know there's a lot of sports history, but there's application here. As he came out for the second round, he launched his secret plan. And even when his trainer said, get off the ropes, he he waved them off and said, I know what I'm doing. And starting in the second round, he decided, I'm going to put up such a strong, tight defense that he'll keep hitting me, but it won't affect me. And he'll get tired and he'll get frustrated because he can't find an opening. Now, think about that. It's a very important thought that I want you to grasp this morning. His whole approach to the fight was that I will have a defense that will not allow an opening for my opponent. Now, spiritually, it's up to us as believers in the body to decide whether we're going to provide an opening for attack or whether we're going to do everything that we possibly can to defend our hearts and our minds and the body of Christ, knowing that we already have the victory through Christ. Now, that would seem logical. That would make sense. We all say, sure, Paul, that that's, I, I get that. But it is amazing how often we let our guard down. How often we provide an avenue for the enemy to hit us. James 4, 7 tells us Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How many believe this morning that that verse is true? James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's a command and a promise and a reassurance all in nine words. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil is a non-negotiable directive from God. It's an imperative. It's what we are supposed to do. It's not up for debate. It's not uh, discussion. Let's figure out if that's the right thing to do, if that's the right tactic. It is a command from God. Resist the devil. Fight against him. Push against him. Don't give him an opening. Don't allow him room. Resist him. Resist temptation. Take the way of escape, the 1 Corinthians 10.13 talks about. Always look for the opening so you can get out of it instead of yielding to it. That's the command. Once he says resist the devil... There's a cause and effect. When you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It's an active statement of fact. When you resist the enemy, he will flee. There's no uncertainty. There's no question. It's not, well, he's really strong and he might get room. No. If God is truth, then this verse is truth. Resist the devil and he will flee. And here is the amazing thing about this verse because there's great depth to the promise. The word flee here means to run away to seek safety, which means that when we resist the enemy, he not only goes away, but he has to find some kind of shelter for himself because he sees the power of God in us, working through us, and he says, I can't fight that. When you resist the devil, he will run away and he will hide. Because he cannot handle the power of the Lord being exerted out of your life. That's a powerful promise this morning. And that's why this passage in Ephesians 4 is so important for us to see and live by. Because here Paul is saying we need to proactively protect the body and we need to counteract the enemy. So how we live and how we act toward each other within the body and what we're committed to do to preserve unity is vitally important. Let's see what he says here in Ephesians chapter 4, start in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I exhort you, I, I challenge you. I, it's, it's all I have here. That's the meaning of the word. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now notice in verse one, that Paul calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. We know that's a fact because he's in jail as he writes this. But there's also a not-so-subtle inference. There's a not-so-subtle message that Paul is giving to the Ephesians. He's saying, listen, as I write this to you, I'm suffering for my faith. And that's important because there are some issues in Ephesus. See, Ephesus started as kind of the central location of Christianity in Asia Minor, In 52, 53, 54, those important years, about 20 years after Christ ascended back into heaven. Paul lived at Ephesus for three years, and he established the church there, and it became known for its faith and for for its uh, reputation as strong believers. But by the time Paul writes this letter, about nine, ten years later, Ephesus had fallen apart. Division and disunity had crept into the church, and most of it was centered on false teaching, and it was incited by the fact that the believers that were in Ephesus had increasingly become worldly. And that was the root of Timothy's struggles. If you look at the book of Second Timothy later, you'll see that much of his struggle was in the internalization in the ministry of worldliness, the fact that the church had become like the world. And Timothy writes to Paul and he says, I'm so frustrated by this and I'm making so little headway here in Ephesus that I really want to quit the ministry. And it's why Paul is so strong in writing back to him and saying, this is how you have to serve in the face of that situation. And you know well, 2 Timothy 3 and 4, where Paul says, in the end times, men will be lovers of selves. And Timothy, you need to preach the word and do the work of ministry and be an evangelist and all the other great things he instructs them to. That's because the church had gotten worldly. He's not saying, hey, you need to have this great outside ministry, and certainly we do. He's saying, you've got to solve the problems inside first because nobody from the outside is going to be drawn to the gospel if the church is a mess. This is why evangelism hasn't been so effective over the last 30 years. Because the church is a mess. So Paul writes that instruction. And even though this was sound doctrine and teaching, and Timothy did it, the Ephesians continue to fall away because they opened themselves up to attack. They didn't protect the body. They didn't protect themselves. Instead, they allowed there to be disunity and they allowed the work of gospel ministry to fall away and they allowed their doctrine to become weak and influenced by false teaching and they allowed themselves to lose their focus. See, the opposite of protecting is allowing the enemy space. And that's what happened. So less than 10 years after this book, this is written in 62 A.D., in 70 A.D., excuse me, 90 A.D., John gets the message from the Lord in the book of Revelation. And the Spirit says to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You stopped loving me. You stopped loving the Gospel. You stopped loving holiness. You stopped loving everything. You walked away. You you decided that you didn't care anymore. See, they didn't listen. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. They didn't listen to the instructions. Walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling you've been given with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love. Notice the next two words. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That word "diligence" is important. It means hurry up and exert yourself. So the Holy Spirit is saying to them and to us, hurry up to exert yourself to make sure the body stays unified. In other words, preserving unity within the body is not a passive action. It's an intentional, urgent, passionate decision to protect and build up and encourage each other in the Lord. A lot of police officers on their shield, they have the words serve, protect, and defend. And those three words are what are being commanded to us right here in chapter four. Look at verse two. It says in verse two, to serve. In verse three, to protect. And in verses four to six, to pretend, or pretend excuse me, to defend. We're called to serve one another with humility. Look at the verse, verse two. That means selflessness and gentleness, which means a, a meek and a mild spirit and with patience. That means sacrifice and love. Serve one another. Be servants to each other. Don't think of yourself. Don't put yourself first. Don't be hostile. Give yourself to one another in selflessness, with meekness and patience and love. Oh, that that would characterize our church every single day. And then he says you need to protect the body of Christ by seeking unity, remembering that there are essentials that we all agree on, the hope of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, Our faith, our identification with Christ, the Father, the Spirit. These are the things that we're supposed to defend without compromise. And we're supposed to not allow other things to distract us from the fundamentals of our belief. Because when we do that, it hurts the confession of our faith. And these are things that cause us to be divided in conflict. And then to make sure that we get the message, notice what he says in verse 7 he says to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift now why at the end of those six verses does he throw that in because it doesn't seem to fit and yet it makes perfect sense because he says to us if any of us thinks that we have all the answers if any of us starts to position themselves that do things or or that or that cause uh, people to be fighting against, serve, protect, and defend. What we need to remember is that we are nothing without the sacrifice of Christ. Whenever we start to get a little bit of an attitude or, or, or kind of jockey for position or say, well, I, I need to be important or whatever the case may be, whenever that starts to creep into our mind, we know that's the scent of hell because the devil pushed himself and said, I'm more important than God. So so anytime we hear that, we need to look at the cross. And we need to remember that we're nothing without Christ. He did it all for us. By dying and rising again, and by saving us and redeeming us, He brought together all these sinners who were nothing, who were destined for hell, who were worthless on their own, and He said, I'm going to bring you together as one body, and I'm going to completely unify you by my mercy. That's why in those three verses, we see the word one used seven different times. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. It's all together, and it's only because of Christ. Now flip over a page to chapter 5 and verse 1, and he reinforces the thought. He says, therefore, and it's kind of a continuation of chapter 4, verse 7, he says, therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the position that we're in because of Christ. And he says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul reiterates the point here. Christ gave himself for us. Christ presented himself as the offering for sin. Christ was the sacrifice to buy us from sin and redeem us forever. There is nothing of us in that. And we know it. It's a fact. It's our conviction. And yet we must forget it based on how we sometimes act within the body of Christ. Because not only do we fail sometimes to protect and defend the body, but there are actually times when we drop our gloves and say, Here, hit us. And we're not thinking that way. We're not saying, I think I'll be rebellious. I think I'll let the body take a hit. Instead, self starts to creep in. And without knowing it, like a tired fighter, if you've ever watched a boxing match, a tired fighter starts to drop their gloves. When they first come out, they're all like this, and they're all ready to go. I've never boxed, but you can get the idea right. And they're all full energy, and the gloves are up, and they're not getting hit, they're dancing around. But if you watch a fighter in the 11th, 12th round, they're like this. And when we get weary in well-doing and we stop walking worthy of the calling that we've been given, we start to drop our gloves. We may not even realize it. The boxer's not intentionally doing it, but he's doing it nonetheless. And that's what happens. We open ourselves up and we start to get hit. And we wonder why we don't realize that we've dropped the gloves. Listen, I'm going to say it again because I've said it before and we've talked about it. There is nothing that the enemy would love more than to divide and defeat this church. In fact, he would love to divide and defeat every single church that loves the Lord and stands for Jesus Christ and preaches the word and and shares the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing to protect the body? And how do I protect it? All right, let's get into application. The answer is found in the verse we just read, Ephesians 5 2. He says to us, walk in. Love. Walk in love just as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for us. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, I hope we do this. This would be wonderful. If we could kind of get our hands around this and embrace this and and just do our best, this would be great. That's not what he's saying. There's nothing... Questionable. There's nothing indecisive about it. There's nothing that leaves room for us to decide whether or not we want to do it. It's a simple three words. Walk in love. It's a necessary action for the believer. It's modeled by Christ. And it provides strength and protection for the body. Without walking in love, Or in an environment where it's deficient and self-interest is more important, believers will be prone to attack and we will be worn down by the punches of our opponent. But where it's present and where we're imitating the example of our Savior and Lord, there is strength and unity and protection around the body that just frustrates the enemy and causes him to remember that he cannot defeat us. It's that important. And that's the choice that's before us. Believing that the days are short and the Lord wants to help us and bless us and use us in a mighty way. It is so important, church. It is so important, believer, that we hurry to exert ourselves to protect the body. And it starts, if you underline your Bible, underline those three words. It starts with walking in love. Now, I was very fascinated this week by words And it's interesting because I thought, what does walking mean? We talk about our spiritual walk. We talk about walking with the Lord. We talk about walking by faith. So what does that mean? Does that mean we kind of just stroll along and do our best? And yeah, I'll try to have my love and I'll try to walk by faith. But you know, it's challenging. The, The word is very strong here. The word walk means to regulate your life by it and to make the most of every opportunity. It's double meaning. When he says walk in love, he means regulate your life by love. When we talk about walking by faith, it means to regulate your life by faith. When he says walk in unity, regulate your life by unity. And the second part of the meaning is show, uh, take advantage of every opportunity to practice it. In other words, when he says walk in love, it is to control how we think and act. It is to be the singular purpose that drives every action. There is never to be a circumstance in which we do not express love. Is that how you and I live? Is that how we manage our lives? This is not some idealistic hope. This is a direct command from the Holy Spirit of God. But how often do we dismiss it? Because we want to live another way. That's why if you go as far back in your Bible, look at your text, all the way back to chapter 4, verse 17, and all the way down to chapter 5, verse 18, all in that section, there are example after example after example of all the different ways that we don't show love for each other. Let me quickly run through the list. hard heartedness, sensuality, lust, Deceit, lying, anger, stealing, unholy words, words that tear down, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, filthiness, silly talk, coarse sarcasm, impurity, coveting, idolatry, deception, participation in what's evil, lack of wisdom, and being under the control of alcohol. That is a frightening list. And what makes it even more frightening beyond the fact that we do so many of them is that there are variations of it every day in our lives and the list isn't even comprehensive. Now that's not to shame us. What it is designed to do is just show us how prevalent the appeal of sin and self is and how rare love is. For 30 verses... Paul talks about all the things that don't show love. And yet, right in the middle of them, in verses 1 and 2, he says, in the midst of all this garbage, there's one thought. Walk in love. In the midst of all this mess, all the things that we can do that exemplify the old self, all the things that are selfish and self-centered and cause division and disunity in so many ways, in the midst of all that, Here's the contrast. Walk in love. When you love someone, you yield to them and you give them preference. Sacrifice is not only not a question, it's an intentional choice. You believe the best about them and you work to be the best for them that you can possibly be. Even though there's all this mess on either side, these two verses, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, are like a huge searchlight that cuts through the darkness and shows us how to live. Paul even says in chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, you are light in the Lord, now walk as children of light. So what does that mean? How How do we show this love and protect the body of Christ? Well, obviously it begins with our own lives. But it also gives us a great calling on how we're to serve, protect, and defend each other. Let's talk very practically. Let me finish with this. I want to give you five five ways we can do this. Five ways that we can practice walking in love. First of all, chapter 5, verse 2. Lavish love on each other. Lavish love on each other. That word means to be excessive. And that really is the approach that we should take in showing our love for the Lord and showing our love for each other there should be absolutely no restraint. We should not be inhibited in showing our love for the Lord and for each other. We're told to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love each other as Christ loved us. And Christ didn't hold anything back. So how much would that change how we worship if we love the Lord without being inhibited in our insecurity? If we praised God and we sung with everything that we've got, I mean, not just, now we're singing kind of loudly. I mean, we just praised God. Imagine if we called forth on God's name and prayed to him with just great love and passion. Imagine if we gave and we didn't say, which bills are it going to be? We gave both of them. Imagine if we studied with, with passion and were uninhibited in saying, I just love the Lord. You can't stop me how much would it change our marriages if our spouse saw us love them without any shame, without any hesitation, and without any amount of self? You say, well, Paul, that's unrealistic. You're right, it's pretty unrealistic, but it's what we're called to do. Do we love our spouse without restraint? Do we love our spouse without any hesitation? Do we love our spouse without any conditions, without any parameters, without any if, but, uh, if only? No, that's not how we're supposed to love because Christ didn't say, well, I'll love you if. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He went to the cross knowing many, Billions would reject it, but he still went. That's how I'm supposed to love my wife. How different would our homes and our families and our churches be if we lived that way? Sacrificing what we want, putting the other person first, not controlled by fear and insecurity and the need to make ourselves look good. See, of all the phrases that describe love in First Corinthians 13, there's one that always stands out to me and it's so fully exemplified by Christ. In all the verses in First Corinthians 13 that say what love is supposed to be, the one that always sticks out to me is love does not seek its own. Love is kind, love is patient, love is not easily provoked, love believes all things and hopes all things. I get those. Those are relatively easy. But if the measure of love ultimately is to never seek your own, that changes everything. And it affects every area of our lives. How much greater would things be if we were excessive in saying, I will never seek my own? Not just, I'll try, I'm going to be overwhelming, I'm going to be overflowing, I'm going to be off the charts, I'm not going to seek my own at all. It's what you want. Can you imagine how that would change our country? Can you imagine how much it would change the church, how much it would change our homes? Lavish love on each other. Second, urge unity within the body, chapter 4, verse 3. Urge unity within the body. In other words, be the one who advocates what Philippians 2.2 calls us to do. To be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That purpose is to have the same attitude that Christ did, to be humble and sacrificial. And if that sounds like a broken record, it is. Humble and sacrificial. And the verse that precedes Philippians 2.2, you can study it later this week. Explains why it's so important. Because it is the only way that there will be encouragement and love and fellowship within the body. How can we do those things? How can we have those things if we aren't of the same mind and intent on the same purpose? How can there be a unified spirit? How can there be personal and spiritual encouragement in the body if everybody's out for themselves? It can't exist. If I'm always selfish and you're always selfish and we want our way and we're determined to get it and we're going to push somebody out of the way to get it, how are we going to gather together and say, oh, praise the Lord together? It's impossible. So this is what we're called to. How can people feel like they're one with other believers if there are cliques and behind-the-back criticism? And undermining of character and racism and sexism and anything else that excludes people and makes them feel less than. Even the disciples did this. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritans woman, Samaritan woman, they kind of were like, what are you doing? And the Pharisees constantly did it to Jesus when he was talking to the dregs of society. And they're like, what do you think you're doing? And the early churches, Corinth, They were selfish and critical and spreading gossip. It's an ugly problem, and while we might try to defend ourselves for doing it, there's really no defense. Every member of the body of Christ has the responsibility to uphold and inspire unity, which makes the third line of action very key to our success. The third line of action is to watch your words. Watch your words. This is in chapter 4, verse 29, and chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, where Paul essentially says in our communication, especially within the body of Christ, we're to be pure and truthful and edifying and loving. Pure, truthful, edifying, and loving. If it does not fit in those four words... It is not only not protecting the body, it is doing damage to the body. That's why in these 30 verses, Paul addresses how we talk 12 times. Well over a third, almost half of the verses about maintaining unity are related to how we talk. And in chapter 4, verse 25, look at it, he sums it up nicely. He says, lay aside falsehood, which includes the suggestion or implication that something's not true, and speak truth, each one of you, for we are members of one another. We are one body. So speaking truth, that means gossip's out. Because in gossip, there's always a shade of doubt and twisting effect. Judging motives is out because it has to assume that we know the truth about something before the truth is revealed. Private criticism is out because it chooses to analyze the person's character to somebody else rather than going directly to them. It also means that we can't be overly sensitive and always worried about what people are thinking of us because that comes from a filter of personal insecurity and bias which is not based in truth either. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is none of this is honoring to Christ and none of it should be allowed by the members of the one body of Christ. Ephesians 5.19 explains what we should do instead. Look at it. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. Notice the demonstratives there always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject or submissive or yielded or sacrificial to one another in the fear of Christ. After those 30 verses, notice the complete shift in focus away from self and to Christ. Everything here centers on him, even though it's how we're to speak to one another. And it comes back to having a proper perspective and focus on who we are and how we got here and what a privilege it is to be part of the body. And the spirit is not even remotely subtle in verse 20. He says, always giving thanks in all things in the name of Christ. Number four, defend biblical doctrine. Defend biblical doctrine. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 13. We don't need a lot of time on this one, but one of the sources of internal disunity in the body is emphasizing the minors of doctrine instead of standing for the majors of doctrine. Think about it. When was the last time we really debated, or, or let me term it differently. When was the last time we stood up and defended the integrity of Scripture? When was the last time we defended and stood for proudly and openly salvation through Jesus Christ alone? These are the non-negotiables of our faith. These are the ones that we will not waver from. That's why the enemy doesn't want us discussing them. He'd rather that we argue about the things that aren't fully clear from the Bible and aren't essential to our salvation. And in doing that, chapter 5, verses 6 to 13 says that we start to border on division then he creeps in and he incites us to be careless with our words and to take sides and to be disunified and to become comfortable with what is morally borderline. Which do you think is better for the body to do? To debate the non-essentials and to be open up to worldliness or to stand for what is absolutely essential? Defend biblical doctrine. Number five and we're done. Remember your reputation. This is in chapter four, verses 17 to 24. Remember your reputation. There are two reputations that you and I have to protect this week. Reputation number one is the name of Jesus Christ. If you confess the name of Jesus Christ this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you have trusted in him, and he has saved you forever, you have an absolute responsibility this week to defend the name of Jesus Christ. And it's being slandered and impugned more and more every single day. Defend the name of Jesus Christ. The second reputation we have to protect is the body of believers. Now, why are these two things important? Well, first of all, those outside these walls will largely determine the authenticity of Christ's salvation by their evaluation of our lives and words. People that don't know Christ will evaluate whether salvation through Christ is real by what they see in us. So if we dishonor him by remaining in sin, they will be very hesitant to believe that he is real and that his work of transformation is real. Now, that is a heavy responsibility, but that's why this is so important. They will evaluate whether Christ is authentic, whether salvation through Christ is authentic, whether the just really do live by faith and not by works, by what they see in us. So it's vitally important that we defend the reputation of the name of Christ by our words and by our actions. And second, if we stand for Christ, if we say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, I've trusted in him, then they will analyze the reality of our new life in Christ by how consistently we show love for each other and for them. The first thing we'll look at is, is this real? Does Christ really save? Is it really transformation? Does the person really change? And as part of that, they'll look at it and say, well, how do they treat each other? If this is real, then change will come. When I counsel people and I give them counsel and say, this is what the Lord wants you to do, I know whether they really mean it by how their actions go from then on. If they go back to the same actions, I say to myself, well, they don't really believe what I told them. It hasn't really been internalized in their life. But if you see change, you go, yes, they get it. Well, the world's looking at us and saying, do they really live what they believe so if our reputation is divisive and critical and hostile toward each other and hostile toward unbelievers what would possibly convince them that god's love is in us they might say well i think i think jesus maybe i don't he might have he might be real he might die for our sins But I look at the people that believe in Jesus and I don't see any evidence of change. So while my heart might be open to it, I don't know why I would receive it. Defend the reputation of the name of Christ in the body of believers. Because we've been changed by Christ, we're part of the body. We're called to defend and protect it. And the enemy's strong. But when we resist him, he is forced to run and hide. Is that our posture, or are we creating openings? We're called to be proactive and intentional about walking worthy of Christ. And here's the bottom line, and we're going to pray. When we walk worthy of this calling, The Lord gives victory after victory after victory. When we walk worthy of the Lord and we protect the body, God will give us victory after victory after victory. There will be no stopping us. There will be no stopping the church. There will be no stopping the gospel. There will be no stopping repentance and revival. It starts with us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your word. We praise you for the power of your promises. For the assurance of what you're going to do. Lord, you have already done More than we can possibly ask or think. But you also give us this calling, this commission to stand for you and defend the body, to guard ourselves so that the punches of the enemy are not getting through, to be tactical and wise, not creating openings not doing things that are going to give the opponent an advantage. Lord, you give us that ability. And you've already secured the victory. So now, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would walk worthy of you, that we would defend your name, that we would remember our reputation as those who have committed their lives to you that we would watch the way we talk, do what it's required to preserve unity. Father, this is a battle and it's getting more intense. We pray that you would help us and that we would walk worthy. Lord, I pray you'd encourage anybody here this morning that is discouraged in the battle, that feels weak and lacking in strength, whose conviction is is restless this morning who feels weary and well doing lord strengthen them right now we pray fill them with the power of your holy spirit give them confidence that they are an overcomer in christ and lord protect us from being weary and well doing You are a faithful, loving God and you are worthy of everything that we can possibly give and so much more. We exalt you and magnify you this morning and pray that you would be pleased with how we live. Guide and direct us, we pray, in Jesus' name.